electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Right now on Fast, Wall Street's next test, Home Depot and Walmart on the clock, set to kick off a monster week of retail earnings. Are rising rates and skyrocketing inflation starting to take their toll on consumer spending? And what's the forecast for the rest of the year? Plus, crude back on the climb, gas prices hitting record highs, diesel demand off the charts, and all of this with China still mostly sidelined with COVID shutdowns. Are we about to get a new summer surge? And later, shares of Twitter right back where they started before all of this must mania started. The battle now over bots, the price tag and a smiling poop emoji. How did we get here and where is this going next? I'm Melissa Lee. This is Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in the heart of Times Square. On the desk tonight, Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, Dan Nathan, and Guy Adami. And we start with a big week for retail. Earnings on tap from the likes of Walmart, Target, Home Depot, Lowe's, and others starting tomorrow morning. And the results could give us our first real read on how the consumer is handling decades-high inflation. So what are we watching for in these results? Tim, what do you say? Well, Walmart is interesting because uh, relative to Target, it, it's actually you know, not very cheap. Relative to itself, it's relatively cheap. But uh, in terms of who they serve, right, a, a lower to middle class consumer, not entirely, but probably disproportionately hurt by higher energy prices. Um, so while this is a sweet spot, I think, for uh, the business cycle for a company like Walmart, it is a case where I do think that uh, a core customer may be most under pressure here. If you look at comps, they're expected to be about 3%. There are some people think they could they could inch over that again. Uh, inflation in terms of food prices is good for 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 Walmart. Ultimately, I, they, they are the ones that can actually push people around. But also higher food prices mean better top line, better comps, uh, even if the margins may be under some more pressure. Yeah, I think this is a really interesting report, especially after some of that credit data that we had last week. Consumer credit um, was up, I think, in March, 52 billion. It was up 14% year over year. Revolving credit was up 21%. So when you think about that demographic that Walmart really serves, I think it'll be really interesting to hear what they are seeing as far as trends. So that one, I think, is really important. The other one is, as far as Home Depot is concerned, I mean, listen, we know that with rates where they were and housing going up the way, the way it was over the last couple of years, I mean, people were pouring lots of money into right. their homes. And so now all of a sudden, forget inflation, forget the negative wealth effect of the stock market being down 20%, maybe the housing market, at least some of the anecdotal stuff that I'm seeing. And we have been talking about it on the show over the last month or two. It really looks like the housing market is beginning to cool. The 30-year mortgage has basically doubled in three or four months or so. So to me, I think what comes in this part of earnings season is going to be the most important. I think we all breathe a bit of a sigh of the relief. There was no massive disasters from some of the largest companies in the S. S&P 500 last month. But despite that, the stock market did not perform particularly well during right. that period. So I'm not sure that there's anything that these two companies or the rest of the retailers have to say this week will make us feel that much better. But I do think they could make us feel incrementally a little worse about the consumer. I mean, the way the quarter closes, too, for retailers is a little bit later in the season, Karen. So we'll have much a much better sense of how the consumer is digesting all the price hikes they've been seeing, whether it be from energy or food prices, everything that you pay for, basically. 
Right. I mean, I think it's going to be three months of sort of cloudy data because the first month of this retail quarter is February, which was still very much uh, affected by Omicron. And then March, you had the sort of the response to the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine. And that sort of pulled back uh, people's spending a little bit, briefly maybe. And now maybe you're starting to see in, in um, April what things could look like. So I really think that it's going to be about the forward looking, not so much the backward looking, because um, that'll be some, I, every company will have some different spin on that. But the forward looking, I think that'll be important. But I think to Dan's point about housing kind of rolling over, it's, I agree with that. It's hard to see how it wouldn't. I mean, if you look at something like Rocket Mortgage and how much they expect their revenue to be down going forward, it's hard to think that it's going to be great for some of the housing names. But the home builders, I think, have already somewhat priced that in. Names like mm. a Home Depot, maybe not. And a Lowe's, which, you know, I own, um, maybe not. Yeah. How do you think about that subsector of retail, Guy? Because if you're a consumer and you're in a house already, I mean, you're still feeling all right. You've got you locked in that low 30 year fixed mortgage rate. So <laughs> at least you're not being hurt by that. Yeah. And as a sell off in Home Depot, this is what I'll struggle with. The sell off from 419, I think, was the all time high down to this 285, 290 level, which, by the way, you go back to 2020. That's a level where the stock had trouble with to the upside for a number of months before breaking out. I think Tim would agree. I know because he said it. On a valuation basis, I don't think Home Depot's been cheaper in the last decade or so. So you can definitely wrap your head around it on valuation at maybe 17 and a half times next year's numbers. I sort of like it into earnings. You know, I think a lot has been priced in, and anything incrementally positive on the margins, I think, get this stock higher. Even with analysts cutting their numbers, I think the average price target is still 360-ish or so. And the two things I'm looking at, comps for sure. And margins in the form of are they able to pass on these costs to their consumer, to their customer? Yeah, but I think that, I mean, I think a question too, Tim, is, you know, for the consumer going to a Home Depot, if you're paying X percent more for a two by four for a hammer and a bunch of nails, you might not do that home project that you're planning on doing. And that, that's what, I didn't make that up. <laughs> that's what analysts have said. Um, and so I, I thought that was a very good point, though. I mean, if, if you have an elective sort of home improvement you might say, you know what, maybe not now. I, I tell you what, the, the two by four, the hammer, the nails are all things that are not going to, you know, I, I will not be derailed by that home project. Some people might be. What I think is interesting is that Home Depot and Lowe's have not given you any indication that their business has changed or that the housing market has changed. That concerns me as an investor. And, and I was going through some notes. JP Morgan had a, at a conference in, in April where they, they were basically talking about all the positives of the housing cycle. They were talking about where the consumer and the consumer balance sheet and the wealth effect. Um, nobody has has cautioned that rates have risen 100 basis points, that they're going to rise significantly more, at least if we believe the Fed. Uh, Floor and Decor actually a couple weeks ago actually did give a guide where they put at least a soft adjustment to their guide. And, and so reiteration from Home Depot and Lowe's of what they've given, I think is tough to expect. And in fact, you almost I'd like them to get it out of the way. I, I you know, to me, that is where we're going to be. Their comps are going to be down. They're going to point to weather related. It was the coldest April in 22 years. So those headline numbers are not going to be great. They're going to say this is one off factors. They're not going to talk about necessarily the impact of the housing market. But I others have and I kind of wish they would.
Yeah, I'll just say this, you know, Tim, you just hit on something I think is really important. I mean, investor sentiment or consumer sentiment, too. I mean, you know, a couple months ago, investors thought they had money everywhere in yeah. used cars, in watches, in digital art, in crypto coins. I mean, and it all went poof. I mean, it really has. So when you think about the housing market, I don't know how it actually sustains. Now, listen, it, it can come in and still be just fine. I think the key point is the mortgage rates. And I got off the phone with a friend of mine who finally refinanced his mortgage, okay, and he locked now? in two. 2.7. No, he locked in because he had a okay. lock. 2.75%. Uh-huh. That's going back three months. Wow. And you know what the mortgage broker and his lawyer said to him? That's great. This is my last bit of work I have for a while. He goes, what, you mean for the rest of the day? He goes, no, for a while. Because people will not be refining. And when they're refining, they were putting it into. So when you think there's not leverage in the system, they were spending it at Home Depot or they're buying digital art, PFPs, right? like Guy Adami or something like that. You know, I mean, this is where all of this cash was going. And that's done for now. I think that psychological aspect is important. I mean, you can say that inflation is still historically low, et cetera. Mortgage rates are still historically low. But the rate of change, Karen, in the system in the just the past month or two months is that's a real shock to consumers who, as Dan, were saying, so used to free money, so used to everything being, you know, at a discount and just, you know, high prices everywhere for their own assets that they own in their portfolio. Right. I think, you know, it's sort of now we're in that time where people don't want to open their statements uh, if they're not online now for seeing what their their IRA is or what their match is. But also it's sort of like the slap in the face when you get to the gas pump and you're like, wow, that I mean, then you start to think, all right, well, where else are you going to sort of pull back to be able to uh, to pay for that? But one of the, the good things about being a Home Depot or being a Walmart is that they're trying to keep the customer's prices low and they have the buying power to do it. So they're going to push back on their suppliers and say, hey, I don't really care if your if your costs have gone up. We're only going to take a small increase and maybe they pass it along to the customer. And maybe that's actually even a little bit good for the Home Depot or Walmarts of the world. But they can only do that for so long. So I think, though, in the interim, though, I think inflation is actually somewhat peaking and that the expectation about inflation going down will be helpful. All right. Well, as consumers are getting squeezed, home prices apparently are still going through the roof. The St. Louis Fed reports the average U.S. home price in the first quarter was just over a half million dollars. That's a record. But one big player in the real estate market expects housing to hold up. Joe Zeidel is Blackstone's chief investment strategist. Joe, always great to see you. Where are we in the housing market at this point? Well, thank you very much for having me. And I would say that there is very much the risk out there that conditions soften in the housing space, right? We've had this steady drumbeat of bad news over the last couple of months. Uh, Just over the course of the last few minutes, you've been talking about the rising mortgage rates and the consumers getting, you know, pinched as well as the negative wealth effect as as people are looking at their statements or looking at their online brokerage accounts and seeing stocks down. Uh, And so you are hearing this drumbeat of bad news where, you know, people are talking about recession odds uh, rising over the next 12 months, but I'm of the view that there's a longer runway to the uh, economic growth here in the United States. I think uh, ultimately, you know, the Fed is going to have to hike interest rates until something breaks. Uh, But I don't agree with the consensus view that says, you know, recession, that we're on the edge of a a recession now. I, I, I think that we've got a longer runway here and it's household balance sheets that are really the source of that that tailwind. Uh, so I, I do think that, um, you know, over time, housing ends up, uh, I think, having terrific supply and demand fundamentals so that when we do get to a point where something breaks, I don't think it's housing that does. 
you know, this is not another 2000, this is not another setup to a 2007 or 2008 or 2009 type environment. Uh, I think there are risks out there in the economy, but but in my opinion, housing is not one of those big risks. It, it's sort of, though, mind-blowing, Joe, to think that mortgage rates can go up um, by this percentage in such a short amount of time without actually cooling the market down by just saying that it's supply-demand dynamics that will support everything. I mean, has there been an, an additional decrease in supply in the market? I mean, how do we how do we think about this? It just doesn't make any logical sense on paper, at least to me, that you can have this spike in rates and, and you don't see that cool down. Sure. I think there's a third dynamic to consider, right? One, one, one important consideration is going to be home price. Second is going to be mortgage rates. But the third is labor markets. And historically, housing ends up being more highly correlated to labor markets than it is to mortgage rates. And so what, you, what, what I would expect to see is that housing activity is going to slow down because of higher mortgage rates. But when you think about home prices and if you think about the things that cause home prices to drop, uh, that really ends up being a story of, of labor markets. As long as the jobs market remains relatively healthy, I think housing will as well. Now, we do have to think about how uh, the jobs market overheating. You know, clearly that's something that the Fed is is dealing with. So I do see some problems down the road. But again, this is not a, a, a next six months or next 12 months phenomenon. So I think we could see housing activity slow. And certainly we could see home price appreciation. You know, I, I think that's going to have to level off. But if you think about the factors that are going to cause a drop in home prices, you really have to have, in my opinion, the unemployment rate rising. And I just don't see that anywhere in the next uh, you know, three to six or six to 12 months. I think we're still in a relatively healthy jobs environment. Hey, Jay-Z, it's Tim. Uh, cool specs, by the way. And, and you know, when, <laughs> I, when I think about what the Fed is doing right now with their asset bubble and they're, you, know, you, you look at income or wealth to income ratios, however you want to look at them, they're still extraordinarily high by any measure, higher than they were in 2008. That's the part of it that, that concerns me is that the Fed really understands what they did on the way up. And it seems as if they've had enough religion on the way down. Just your view on if the Fed can be as impactful um, as they claim they're trying to be, because clearly the market has been talked higher. Um, but it's part of it is your Fed call here. Yeah. And, and, and I think the Fed's going to have to go further. Um, than, than the market thinks. The market's basically got the Fed wrapping up its hikes by the end of this year. I think the market's maybe pricing in one hike in 2023 at this point. And, and I think they have the Fed funds rates going to 3%. My own view is that the Fed's going to have to uh, extend out that hiking cycle. Uh, and I think they'll be hiking well into next year. And as a result, I think the Fed's fund rate's going to go higher. Uh, and, and I think there are going to be challenges in equity markets. And in my own view, uh, I think that valuations in, in, in stocks still remain too high high and that I think we're going to have to see multiples come down. But if you think about that wealth effect, you know, households have wealth from a couple different sources, right? You've got the you've got the the four savings of a house, then you of course have your stock and retirement funds. And if you look at the difference between 1999-2000 when the tech bubble burst and 07-08 when the housing bubble burst, the difference between the two is when the tech bubble when the Nasdaq bubble burst, you had a relatively shallow quick recession because relatively fewer people own stocks than own houses. So if we do have a, a, an issue or a challenge in the financial markets, it's going to impact a relatively smaller number of people because generally housing has greater dispersion. So if we're going to look at the, the catalyst or the culprit to, to the next sort of you know, economic uh, disruption, um, you know, markets maybe 
NFTs, cryptos, those sorts of things that you were talking about as we as we were coming on, maybe. Um, but you have very little access in housing. So, Joe, if the Fed is going to keep raising until something breaks, does that mean that the housing market could break beyond the six to 12 months where you say the housing market will remain fine? Sure. Well, if we're to think about the, the sort of the silver linings here, it's that you don't have a lot of excess in housing. Uh, in other words, you haven't had overbuilding. You haven't had a drop in uh, credit uh, or lending standards. And you don't have people using their homes as an ATM the way that they were, you know, in the great financial crisis. And it was really that last part where people were, were tapping their equity in their homes uh, that caused so many people to go upside down where the value of their, you know, what they owed was greater than the value of their home. They walked away, you know, they turned the keys to their homes uh, over and they, they walked away. That negative equity, uh, I, we're nowhere near that. You know, if you look at HELOCs, the cumulative use of HELOCs today, home equity lines of credit is still 60% below where it was in 2007. And at the same time, home equity is at an all-time high. So if we think about those things that are gonna break, because, okay. in, well, in my opinion, because you have very little excess in housing, I think you end up having less risk. So you might see home prices generally flatten out. You might have pockets of weakness where home prices in some regions might fall. But the idea of having a national and a prolonged drop in housing as the economy eventually rolls over, I, I, I think is still a relatively low probability. Joe, always great to get your thoughts. Thank you. Joe's Idol of Blackstone. Guy, you buy what Jay-Z is selling. Yeah, I know I, I do because, listen, Blackstone's become one of the biggest, if not the biggest player in the real estate market. So, you know, people will hear me say this and say he's talking his book. Yeah, he is talking <laughs> his book. But in that case, you should listen because, quite frankly, there's some of the smartest people out there in terms of what Blackstone's been doing. So he's obviously well-versed. In terms of the stocks, quickly, I mean, and Tim can speak to this as well. You look at a name like Sherwin-Williams, which has come up 20%. Whirlpool some 20% off their all-time highs from just literally a month or so ago. Valuations are more reasonable now. And I think with housing, it just becomes a supply-demand fundamentals, and they still favor uh, the upside, I think. Yeah, and I respectfully disagree with the chief investment officer of BlackRock, because when I think about, I think he's kind of comparing too much to the, uh, the financial crisis that was housing-related. I think you have to go look at the other one. Tech companies are about to cut unemployment at 3.6%. If you think that's healthy relative to where the tight demand is, or the supply, excuse me, in the housing market, those things are going to come together at some point, and I just don't think it's going to um, be a great setup here. So to me, I, I actually think we're about to see unemployment start to tick up and i do not think that's going to be good for home values blackstone and i do I, I agree in terms of you know the declines in the stock market you got to watch that because there is sort of there is a cycle it doesn't happen in a vacuum companies feel it right and then they take action and that action might be not hiring as many people or laying people off anyway coming up we are watching the after hours move and take two shares of the video game maker higher after reporting we're bringing you the details next plus get ready for some high energy trades with Paul Sankey of Sankey Research, where he sees prices heading and the names he likes as crude continues to climb. Do not go anywhere. Fast Money's back in two. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact.
Edward Jones, who knows that just like life, financial planning isn't only about long-term goals. It's about the moments big and small along the way. And when it comes to achieving everyday financial goals, Edward Jones works hard to connect you with someone you can trust professionally and personally. That's why they created their free financial advisor matching tool to help you find a financial advisor in your community. When you take the quiz and get your matches, don't expect just a list of resumes. You'll also see each financial advisor's story and personal interests. And when it's time to meet for the first time, they'll focus on your story, asking questions to understand where you're headed and why. Because Edward Jones knows that at the end of the day, behind every financial goal is a life goal. And that's what really matters. To learn more and find your financial advisor partner, take the quiz at match.edwardjones.com. Welcome back to Fast Money. Earnings alert on Take Two. Shares are popping after hours despite soft bookings and outlook for the year ahead. The game company also reporting earnings of 95 cents a share. Let's get to Steve Kovac, who's been monitoring the conference call. Steve, what's the latest? Yeah, Mel, Take-Two Interactive shares are up, like you said, despite that revenue miss and light guidance for the fiscal year. Uh, and the company is following the same path we saw Roblox and Electronic Arts uh, do last week. Shares rising despite those misses. Now that gaming companies have lapped themselves and comps from the hypergrowth during the pandemic start to look normal. All three of these gaming stocks hammered this year. Take-Two down nearly 40% on the year. Meanwhile, online gaming revenue was down 6%. Take-Two blaming that on competition, but we also know recurring online gaming revenue hasn't grown as much uh, since lockdowns are ending. And that's where Zynga comes in, Mel. Shareholders will vote to approve that $12.5 billion deal later this week. Take-Two saying Zynga will help a larger percentage of revenue come from mobile, which is where the biggest growth in gaming is happening. That call's still going on, Mel, and I'll have more as it comes out. All right, Steve. Thank you, Steve Kovac. Uh, Tim, I know you're envious of Steve's a suede, but aside from that, what do you think of take two? I mean, there's suede is year round, by the way. Um, I, look, I like the story. This was a better number than expected. Strauss Zelnick's done a great job there. I, I do think that that Zynga acquisition may turn out to be uh, synergies are great. There, there may be uh, certainly growth that comes from it. Um, did they would they be paying twelve point seven billion today or anything close to it? I doubt it. Um, if you look at the multiple here, uh, certainly slightly relative to its peers, I, I think it's expensive. Um, EA is a name I'm long. It's a name I prefer. And it's just uh, uh, the content here is very strong. And, and if you look at WW2K, which is coming out, Tiny Tina's Wonderland or whatever it's called. I mean, they, they've got content that people are, 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 are certainly looking to get into. And it's also a case where they are gaming more than they were even pre-pandemic. So the trends haven't fallen off a cliff against tough comps. All right, we've got some uh, news alert here on some big moves in the hedge fund space. Leslie Picker's got the details. Leslie. Hey, Melissa. 13 Fs have been trickling out over the last hour or so. Today is that deadline for the first quarter, and we're starting to paint a picture of what really happened behind the scenes that led to such significant losses for some of the major equity tech funds that we track during the first three months of the year. Tiger Global was down 34% during the first quarter of the year, a source told me. And based on the firm's 13 Fs, it appears that they sold down quite a bit of their tech portfolio. Tiger exited a firm, Airbnb, Asana, Bumble, C3.ai, Coupa Software, Coupang, Dropbox, Duolingo, Marketa, Netflix, and PayPal during the quarter. That's not even all the names there. Tiger also paring back almost the entirety of its stake in Alibaba, a large chunk of Coinbase, 
Robinhood, and Peloton, and sliced in half its stake in Amazon and DocuSign. One area where Tiger added was doubling its stake in Block, actually. Melvin and D1 also paring back a lot of their stakes as well, but less in the tech space. Melvin sold some of Advanced Auto Parts, Bath & Body Works, and some travel names. D1 paired back Disney, RH, and T-Mobile. Mel. All right, Leslie, thank you. Leslie Picker, uh, Karen, which one would you uh, focus on? Well, Tiger Global is really interesting to me. I mean, some of those seemed like they were pretty good sales. It sort of, you know, makes you wonder, wow, what's left in the portfolio to be down as much as they are? But they had obviously a gigantic run. I like to see, um, you know, big, big holders of, of the fangs. I'm curious what generally were there fang buyers or fang sellers? I'm guessing sort of sellers since we had that big bounce in January. But... Um, other than that, I don't know. Something like a Pershing Square would be interesting to me. I know they reported, but I haven't seen it yet. Yeah. Guy? Just goes to show you, even the smartest people in the room are just getting <laughs> obliterated in these markets. When you know, Everybody was doing well when valuations didn't matter. Now, look at all these names. Without exception, every name on that list are stocks that valuations didn't make sense in zero interest rates. Everybody started focusing when rates started to go higher. I'll say in terms of a name that I think is sort of interesting here, Amazon has just been taken to the woodshed. I think a lot of people would have signed up for Amazon sub 2200. Here we are. My sense is you'll start to see and hear people adding to long positions in that name. Um, how about what's your take on Baba, Tim, at this point? I mean, Tiger cut his stake in Baba. JP Morgan now upgrading the tech sector, which just a few months ago or a couple months ago, they said was uninvestable. Uh, look, the, the reasons they are referencing uninvestable is not because Baba and Tencent and, and JD are not companies that are world-class tech companies. They are. Um, it's, it's the dynamic with cybersecurity, Big Brother, um, you know, all the things that give the Chinese government the ability to, to push these businesses around. And, and that's, that's really the dynamic to the extent that Alibaba is uh, a stock that really, look, and we heard this from Mark Lazary on, on overtime. It's a lot of folks just say, I don't have to be here. As a guy that used to invest in emerging markets, uh, and we'd walk around with deals and whatnot, you know, guys would say, and this was during periods when especially tech stocks were running, people say, why, you know, why do I need to invest in China when I'm getting 30, 40%, 50%, all these other places? And I think that's, that's the sense for a lot of US institutions on China. You have the SEC, you have all the dynamics that make this very difficult at some point. Um, and I think nibbling on Alibaba uh, it does make sense. I'm long and I'm long from higher levels. I'm long from lower levels. Um, I, I do think it's a case where you've, you've shaken out a lot of big institutions that include some of the smartest hedge funds in the world that we're talking about tonight. Um, I do think you've had uh, essentially the kind of a sell-off where uh, you've shaken out just about everybody who's there. Mm -hmm. we're, just get, we're just getting started here on Fast Money. Here's what's coming up next. Refiners looking fine. That's the word from a top energy analyst as oil prices continue to jump. He'll lay out his picks in the space next. Plus, Burry's Big Bet, the big short investor taking a bite out of Apple. But he's hoping this one falls far, far from the tree. The details ahead. You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact.
Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production, and they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. Welcome back to Fast Money. Energy, the top performing sector in the S&P again today as oil prices continue to climb higher. Those stocks also dominating the list of new 52-week highs. Occidental, Devon Energy, Chevron, Marathon Petroleum, to name a few. Let's bring in Paul Sankey, Sankey Research President, to break down the moves. Paul, good to have you with us. Um, how are you seeing oil prices and, and how they play out for the year and, and maybe in, even into next year? Well, it looks like today we broke out to the upside. Uh, for those people who like to read charts, it looks like we broke the pennant to the upside. So that was a big move today. And this week, uh, Russian oil officially should leave the market in terms of traders being able to buy it. We'll see what actually happens there. But there's actually more crude to come out of the market. And then, as you know, it's extremely tight on uh, on the distillate, the diesel side particularly, which pricing around $160 a barrel, you know, $50 above above crude prices, it's uh, it's a pretty dramatic environment, not to mention $8 natural gas. So everything on fire at the moment. Hi, it's Karen. Thanks for being on. So okay. how long will it take till we see some supply response from the U.S.? I know the people, uh, companies are probably a little timid given this administration's prior stance. So how long do you think it will take to see that supply? You know, I'm not sure how much difference the administration really makes. You know, it hasn't been helpful with things like the Keystone and with the leasing. But the main thing that we hear is we're really looking for growth in the Permian, uh, which doesn't really need the pipelines or the or the permits, essentially. The issue there is just we're, we're dead short labor, almost no labor available, no steel, no cement. We had the CFO of uh, President, CFO of Diamondback, uh, Fang, that made an acquisition today on uh last week on a call with me and, and he was just saying simply there's no ability to increase uh you know activity at the moment without simply uh stealing everyone from another another company which obviously would be hyperinflationary so they're just not doing it so the answer is that we're probably going to see pretty muted growth both both in oil and natural gas supply this year from the u.s uh you you see valero going to 150 it's like 127 ish now paul uh, is that yeah. your top pick uh, we loved it. That was the 110. When the stock was at 110, it sounded like a very high price target. But, uh, you know, we could go higher here with the way margins are playing out in Q2. So, yeah, we love we, we've really been top pick, as you know, from my previous experiences on the refining side. But then again, we're also calling for oil to be 10 percent of the S&P 500. So pretty much all of them, um, you know, look attractive to us essentially relative to the market. I'm sorry, you said 25% of the S&P 500? You think oil will be? No, 10%. Energy? 10%, okay. But uh, actually, 25%, was, I mean, was, I thought that was a huge call. Yeah, <laughs> 10%, no, I mean, that's still a big call. You could, you could get there, but you'd need the S&P at 500. No, uh, <laughs> I don't. I think that would be too negative. We think you can just about get, with a, with a very bearish shape for the S&P, you can push towards 10% of the S&P in, in, uh, in oil. It was 14% of the peak in 08 and 30% of uh, the right. S&P in right. 1979. All right. Paul, thank you. Paul, thank you. Thank you, research. Uh, Guy Dami, I mean, even if we got to 10% of the S&P 500, I mean, that, that's a lot of dollars that have to flow into the sector from institutions. 
This has been a theme that Tim's been on. Mm -hmm. Listen, Paul was on back in October, Marathon Petroleum. We talked about it's a $60 stock, made an all-time high today, north of 95. Energy, oil prices could go sideways for the next six months, and these stocks would, I think, take that time to continue to grind higher based on that price. Valero, we've talked about forever. I agree with them there. All these levered names make a lot of sense, and I dig that whole beard mustache thing he's got going. He's like one of those whalers out of like a Winslow Homer picture. It's beautiful. <laughs> just called him a whaler. Is that a compliment? Um, by the way, we were talking about uh, Valero and, and his play to play his way to play the diesel shortage. Long Valero, short trucking. And in this case, he's calling for a short Amazon. Um, Tim, do you like that? Uh, I, I think the market's not uh, efficient enough to, 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 for that pair trade. I, by mm. the way, I, I mean, I've done a fair amount of pair trades in my career uh, on things that I thought were fundamentally correlated, and I'm just not, I, I, I don't really like pair trades. Uh, Paul's a talented guy, and he's come on here with some really, and, and we, we pushed him into his short Apple long Exxon. Um, we, we made him a billionaire. So, um, no, I, I think it, it, I understand what he's doing there. And, and I think the most important point about the sector that's not just that it's it's underweighted and people, uh, you know, the dynamic of the S&P under pressure and the energy sector is going to get it there faster. Um, but the 15 to 25 percent free cash flow yields. But then companies balance sheets are so different. People on EOG, PXD, net cash. These companies have no net debt. I mean, it's it's incredible. And I, I think they truly understand um, whether it's 50 or 75 percent of how much they're giving back to shareholders each earnings period. And, and until that changes, um, I think people treat these companies a lot like the airlines. They don't trust them in the best of times because they always quickly uh, get off sides. Let's see. I think this time's very different. Coming up, one bad apple, the big short investor, Michael Burry, revealing a big bet on uh, against the tech titan. We'll break down what is in store for the stock. Plus, Twitter heading south today, bringing the social stock to levels not seen since before Musk made his stake public. So what is next for this name? More on that when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Michael Burry of the big short fame revealing a big bet against Apple. An SEC filing out today showing Burry's firm, Cyan Asset Management, held bearish put options against Apple as of March 31st. The tech titan is down nearly 17 percent this quarter. The SEC filing also showing Burry bought shares of Alphabet, Meta and Discovery. Um, Dan, I'll go to you as the yeah. uh, options guru amongst the four of us. Guru. Four of you guys, I should say, not us. Well, let me dial up my heat seeker. Here, here's what I'd say about this. I mean, obviously, we have no idea. And, you know, in mid-March, right before that Fed meeting, Apple traded 150, and it went up in a straight line, if they could pull that chart up, into the end of the month, into the end of the quarter, and it traded almost 180. And then it spent the next month and a half going lower. And here we are at 145. So we have no idea whether he's out of that position or not. I suspect he probably looked at that sort of parabolic move of 30 bucks and said, this is kind of an easy short at that point. We were talking about it at the time, you know, expectations for the full year, given what was going on in China and the lockdowns there and demand and Europe and being out of Russia and the list goes on and on and on, supply chain issues. It just didn't seem like that stock was trading at the right level when it was 180. So to me, he probably took that short off. I, I, I would be hard pressed right here if you had that inclination in late March. Yeah. Uh, Karen, what did you make of this bit of news? Mm hmm. Yeah, well, I don't, we don't know exactly what they are when he took them off. And mm -hmm. I mean, he's a fantastic, I don't even know if trader is the right word, just um, investor, I guess. But I, I just love hearing that he's long alphabet, long um, meta. 
I think both of those are attractive. Even though they're down, I still think there's value there for sure. Coming up, flying lower. Twitter dropping hard as Elon Musk is in a battle of the bots with the social network. So where does this deal go from here? We'll debate that next. Plus, check out the climb in big pharma. Lillian Merck in the green as some drug headlines push shares higher. We've got the details when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out Twitter getting hammered in today's session. The social media stock has now lost all of its gains since Elon Musk announced his 9% stake back in early April. The latest leg lower comes amid more drama between Musk and Twitter CEO Parag Agrawal, the two sharing vastly different views over how many bots are on the platform. So does anyone know how to calculate the numbers and how can the company be valued if there's such a big question over it? For some answers, let's bring in Leap Managing Partner Gene Munster. Gene. All right, so here's the question. Parag says um, substantially below 5%. Musk says 20%. Where do you stand? 5%, by the way, is what the company has provided the SEC in many, many filings over many, many quarters. Uh, Melissa, my answer is 5%. Put some context around this. The central question is, do you trust management? The central (laughs) question is not can you calculate, estimate the number of uh, bots, estimate the number of bots. Elon is correct that you cannot accurately report the number of bots. That is true, it is impossible. But it is possible to get an estimation based on internal and external data. And so to answer your question, what it comes down to, is it five or is it 20%? Who do I trust in this case? I trust Twitter, and the reason I think that there is a powerful advantage for Elon to stoke up the bot number to get a better price. Uh, so here's the question for me, Gene, at least, and, and if it's below 5% versus 20%, does that change, the, how much would that change the valuation of Twitter, in your view? Well, I think you can take, uh, call it 15% off the valuation if you uh, take the 20% number. And Elon said that it's 20% or greater. And so uh, in this case, uh, so to answer your question, that is, if the number was 20%, somehow that that was the case, that Twitter's been lying about this and the number's actually 20%, then uh, you take whatever the market feels the value is and then you subtract 15% to answer your question. I think that ultimately, um, again, I think that this is a very astute play by Elon to uh, re- essentially renegotiate this in the public markets. Let's say it doesn't get renegotiated, he walks away. What happens to Twitter? I mean, no white knights emerged. So does it just sort of languish? It languishes in a, in a very bad spot. I think that this is probably uh, $30 less per share. I think that ultimately Elon's going to come back and, uh, I mean, just excuse the silliness of this, but probably at a $42 bid on this. And whether or not that that gets done at 42, the investors better take it at 42 because it will languish. I think what Elon has done is injected uh, a a sense of uh, just lack of strength from Twitter management here. I think that investors would be spooked if he went away. Gene, thank you. Always good to see you. Gene Munster, Loop Ventures. Uh, Dan, I know you have a lot to say about this. Well, no, I mean, you know, Gene just used the term astute. He's a a big Tesla bull, and he's been right for a while. And I just think if I'm a Tesla shareholder and I see the way he's interacting with another publicly traded company and really kind of thumbing his, you know, against, you know, like disclosures and all this sort of stuff and publicly trying to do this after he had all the opportunity in the world, he was in discussions with the board to kind of talk about some of these things. I, I, I don't know if it's astute. I think there's probably another word 
word. I mean, if we wanted to pull a Scrabble bag out and try to figure out what it is, it just seems unsavory to me. So that's my two cents. I mean, at one point we were saying that, you know, there's sort of key man risk involved with, with Tesla because of Elon Musk. Is it sort of the opposite now guy where Elon Musk can be seen as a liability? Because that's sort of that's sort of one thesis that's out there, that as he is sort of distracted and, and you know, doing what he's doing with Twitter, Tesla shares have seen a decline. Well, just for full disclosure, I mean, I was the one that thought Tesla would get, excuse me, Twitter would get done north of $54. So that was wrong. But I was also very concerned about Tesla stock. And I'll just take, it, take us back to the day reported earnings. Stock closed, I think, around 1000 We talked about it. That was the quarter that every Tesla bull had been waiting for for three years. They got it. Stock traded up to 1080 And look at it now, flirting with 700 So my concern all along has been what happens to Tesla and quite frankly, here at 700, it's the precipice of seeing the level that Stan been talking about for a long time, 600. And then, quite frankly, I don't know what happens from there. So I think you're spot on in your assessment where he potentially went from a positive quickly to a negative for the shares. All right. Well, options traders don't seem to be feeling optimistic about this potential deal. Let's bring in Mike Coe to break down the action. Mike, what are you seeing? Yeah, well, we've been seeing a lot of heavy options volume in Twitter for some time now, ever since this deal was announced. Uh, Today, it traded about 1.4 times that already elevated put volume. And the most active contracts were the May 35s. We saw almost 35,000 of those trade for about 54 cents. Now, it should be said that a lot of those options were actually big institutional traders who were rolling down the May 45 puts, which they had previously bought and rolling them down to the 35. So this is a a group of options traders who are already quite skeptical of the deal uh, going into this. They bought a lot of those for less than a dollar, sold them today for uh, $6.20 or so. So uh, they've already made some big bearish bets, pressing them now. Is is the corollary to this, Mike, um, lots of bullish activity on Tesla? No. No, I would. I, would, I only wouldn't say that. I, I think this is really a, a story about t- Twitter shares alone. And that mm-hmm. is that if uh, somebody goes in to buy a property, they see the disclosures and then walk away from the deal. The next buyer's <laughs> probably not going to come in and pay right. the same price. OK, Mike, thank you, Mike Coe. For more options action, be sure to tune into the full show Friday, 530 p.m. Eastern time coming up. Some news in the drug space sending pharma names higher. So is this trade the right prescription for your portfolio? We got the details right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. News alert on Berkshire Hathaway's latest holdings. Leslie Picker has the details. Leslie. Hey, Melissa. It was a very busy quarter for Berkshire Hathaway. A lot to get to here. First of all, I want to share that they sold almost the entirety of Verizon, down from holding $8 billion worth of that stock at the end of last year. Also, Berkshire Hathaway taking a new sizable stake in Citigroup, worth nearly $3 billion, while dissolving the small amount that was left of Wells Fargo in that portfolio. A huge bump in Activision Blizzard to hold more than $5 billion worth of stock at the end of the quarter. That was purchased as a merger arbitrage play um, as Activision awaits approvals for its $69 billion takeover by Microsoft, as they mentioned during the shareholder meeting a few weeks ago. Buffett said they now hold 9.5% of that company, though, so they definitely purchased more stock since quarter end, since these 13 Fs reveal. Huge boost to Chevron as well to hold $26 billion worth of stock, which we also have uh, known since that time. Sold some pharma names as well during the quarter. Dissolved a stake in 
AbbVie Bristol-Myers Squibb and paired back its stake in Royalty Pharma by about 83%. So a, a lot of selling in the pharma names. Also purchased 3.8 million more shares in Apple. So a lot of big moves uh, during this quarter by Berkshire Hathaway. Melissa? Leslie, thank you. Leslie Picker. Meantime, shares of Eli Lilly topping the tape today. The newest type but two, type two, excuse me, diabetes drug getting the FDA stamp of approval. Mizuho expecting it to bring in $14 billion in sales by 2030. Shares of Merck also on the move today, trading at a fresh all-time high. So big pharma guy, where would you be? Yeah, despite Berkshire Hathaway, I guess, getting out of some of those names. Yeah, Bristol-Myers had a 17-year double top from 99 to 2016. It's recently broken through there on the upside. Valuation is still good. Full disclosure, my wife works for Merck, but that, as you mentioned, all-time high, just been grinding up. And Eli Lilly on valuation, despite the fact that it's within a whisper of its all-time high, is still compelling. Throw Amgen into the mix, which is on the verge of breaking out to an all-time high, and I think you got to stay with these big-cap pharma names. Just quickly to go back to Berkshire, Karen, $3 billion in city. That's a mm-hmm. fairly big new stake. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, he's been an interesting bank investor over time. You know, we saw him do those preferreds in uh, the great financial crisis that were home runs for him. So I, I find Berkshire's 13F filings more interesting in down tough markets than up markets where he can't find things to do. So. As a Citigroup holder, I'm, you know, a little encouraged to see him there. Uh, I'd love for it to be bigger. And Wells Fargo, he kind of blew it. I, I think he sold not great. Usually hmm. he's pretty good in the banks. City, by the way, is up 1.5% after hours. Coming up 7 p.m. Eastern time. Do not miss a special edition of the news of Shepard Smith. Shep is live in Buffalo reporting on the deadly shooting there. We'll be right back. Time for the final trade. Let's go around the horn. Tim Seymour. Let's stay in the energy space. Pioneer Nat, if you look at the last 12 months, they paid almost uh, a 10% dividend yield, and I think they're going to continue to be able to pay that. Chairwoman. Yeah, staying in the big cap farmer space, I like Merck, not just because Linda works there. Bless, also this year they did spin <laughs> off Organon, so it's even done a little better than it looks. Husband of Linda. <laughs> Paul Sankey is a stud. I'm staying on the Paul Sankey trip. MPC. Dan? Everything's better than Linda. Um, I like that take-two quarter, and I think the stock's down enough. Good balance sheet. I think it's relatively cheap relative to its growth, too. All right. Thanks for watching. Mad Money starts right now. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.